I was going to, uh, the last year I talked about both the um, migration policy making and the topic I'm talking about today. And when it was reorganised, it was narrowed down to talking about actually the role of research in policy making. And I think that must sound rather dull. So actually I'm impressed that you're here after uh, the party and with Simons and so on. But actually what I want to sell to you today is that actually really that this is about power. It's, it's about influence and it's about money. And it's about our role as social scientists and what that role is and how we want to play it. It's about having an impact and it's about avoiding being used and abused when you do research and your research uh, being used in a way, your evidence manipulated in a way that you're not happy with. So it's about how to stay in control, really. It's also about giving something back to research subjects. They give you a lot of their time when you interview them, and you might not be giving something back to them individually, but it's about giving something back to the community as a whole. So really this uh, talk today is about understanding this part of the system that we're in and using it and trying not to be used by it. And I think that's quite exciting stuff. So we'll see what you think. So I'm going to cover four things. First of all, a little bit more about why we need to understand this relationship between academic research on migration and the policy-making process. To do that, we need to know a little bit about the policy-making processes themselves in different contexts. And then I'm going to say a little bit about what the literature tells us on the way in which migration research is actually used in policy making. And then the last bit will be about the practicalities for us as researchers. So if you're going to get, enter into this system, what in practical terms uh, do you do in order to ensure that your research is used in the way that you want it to be? Yes. It is absolutely okay. And um, Meta is doing that as well. Okay. By all means, do. But thanks for asking me. Um, one of them might work, mightn't they? <laughs> do you want to put it closer to me? Yeah, yeah. Do. Okay. So why bother to understand this relationship? Well, I suggest there are seven reasons. Uh, I hope you can um, see that. I realise it's not very large on the slide. Well, the first one, uh, let's be instrumental about it, is about funding. Uh, increasingly, funding bodies want you to show that you can have some impact with your research. It may be if it's an academic funder, that's a relatively marginal part of their criteria. If it's a charitable funder, it's likely to be a very significant uh, criteria. So, for instance, just to mention one, the Joseph Brownlee Foundation, they say in their criteria, we only fund research that has the potential to inform policy and practice. We do not fund knowledge for its own sake. That's very blunt. Um, and if you want to get the money, you have to show when you apply for it that you have some genuine potential to influence something uh, when you've done it. And then, of course, if you're in an academic environment in the UK, you're subject every five years to the Research Excellence Framework, where your department and you as an individual are assessed for a whole lot of things, particularly high, your academic contribution, but also your impact. And it's actually 20% of the assessment. Now, this REF assessment is hugely important to academic departments. I can't tell you the amount of energy that's gone into our department putting forward um, the uh, publications, but also the case studies on impact to show what a brilliant department we are. 
And uh, this means that uh, throughout your time as an academic, you have to be thinking about impact so that when it comes to the five-yearly assessment, you can show that in very concrete terms, your research led to some uh, impact. Impact is quite widely defined, but you have to show that you had it, or ideally you do. Now, there's a third reason, and that is that if we want to have sound migration policy, we want migration to be managed effectively, then uh, the International Organisation of Migration says that reliable data and analysis is absolutely indispensable. We also need it to inform uh, public uh, debate. So that's a very instrumental use of our knowledge. And then I would say a fourth reason is that policymakers, if you talk to them, and certainly uh, advocates for reform are, uh, as well, are constantly frustrated at the paucity of evidence that they can actually use when it comes to some kind of uh, policy making or uh, some challenge where advocates want to change policy. They immediately look around for the evidence that will help them to make the case and invariably we've been off doing research on something else. So they're very frustrated. But then if you talk to academics, they're equally frustrated. I've been working on this issue. Why didn't they use my evidence? It's so clearly said they... Uh, should consider doing X and they've gone and done Y so there's a mutual frustration there's something in this relationship which doesn't work and if we want to look behind that and go beyond the frustration you need to understand the gap between what the evidence suggests and the policy that actually emerge and the implementation Sixthly, I suggested that we might feel a sense of responsibility to our research subjects to give something back and finally we simply want our research to be used and not misused, and if you have this knowledge of how the system works, it empowers us uh, to engage effectively in the system. So before we get into migration uh, policy making per se, we just need to step back a moment and say, well, actually, what do we know about the policy making process? Clearly, we need to understand the system if we're going to uh, engage in it effectively. And uh, one could do a whole lecture on this, but the essence of what we need to know is that, as Michael Hill, who's one of the gurus on this uh, in the UK and uh, Europe, says it's essentially a complex and a multi-layered process. It's a political process, and there are many actors in it. Clearly, it's not the same process in every country. We need to see it in its political context. It depends on the kind of system we have, whether it's a democratic system or not, how power is distributed in that country, whether uh, interests outside of government actually have very much say, or policy making is very tightly made within government, um, and whether, for instance, uh, if you're in a European Union country, you've got that tier of policy at the top there in the European Union, uh, you've got in some European countries regional tiers, like in Germany, which have a lot of say, uh, right down to the municipal level, and we have all those complexities outside of Europe as well. So clearly it's very important to understand the nature of the political system and therefore where the entree points might be for having an influence. There's a very idealised uh, version of how the policy-making process works. Uh, most of the research is done on uh, Western uh, countries, and they see it like this. It starts with identifying the problem. Then the policymakers might go out and consult. They may gather evidence, clearly an important uh, part of the process for us. 
They then sit back and they consider what options they might have for dealing with this problem. The politicians agree a way forward. They design a form of intervention to deal with it. Uh, they then implement it, and ideally they monitor the impact, they feed back information, and then they revise policy as a result. So whereas it used to once be described academically as a linear process, it's now seen as a circle where after implementation you go back to the beginning again and rethink it. Clearly those stages are not necessarily in sequence. Uh, sometimes there's such an emergency, they go ahead and they do something and then they work out why they did it afterwards. Um, they certainly don't, by any means, uh, go through all of the processes. They don't always consult, they don't always gather the evidence. But in any of those parts of the process, research can have an impact. And there's a key initial stage in the process where the way in which the policy is actually, uh, sorry, the problem is conceived is crucial to what is then done about it. And perhaps the, the real goal of research is not just to tinker with the process, but actually to be influential in helping to see the way the problem is framed in the first place, because everything else follows from that. If you perceive the issue in a particular way, uh, the way in which you then think through what's caused it and what you might do about it uh, is rather... Uh, defined by that very initial stage and uh, often theory can be crucially important there, not only empirical findings. So what does research tell us about the impact uh, that research itself has had on the policy making process in relation to migration? Well, the early research actually focused on why policymakers don't use research very often. On this question of this frustration that the research had been done, why wasn't it used? And the first thing um, that uh, academics said was get real. Just be aware that research is simply not the only thing which policymakers have to take into account, particularly in an intensely politicised political uh, topic like migration. The whole electoral politics of it can trump research every time. And you see that time and time again, you know, in a European context where migration is so politicised that the research might say one thing. For instance, migrants are not heavily ben uh, reliant on benefits and social housing. As a study in the UK said less than a month ago, in the very week that the Prime Minister came out and said we're going to take additional steps to exclude migrants from benefits in social housing and that's because the realpolitik of it uh, the imperatives to do something the message that politicians are getting from the electorate is we need you to act and the fact that the facts might point in a different direction is simply not nearly as powerful uh, as the other imperatives so that's one reason and David Coleman who's uh, an academic here at Oxford and was an advisor to the Conservative government back in the 1970s um, said the only decisions that are made primarily on the basis of research findings are politically unimportant ones, which is a rather depressing thought, um, but he's probably right. And then the second set of explanations is about this sort of mismatch between what we provide uh, as uh, academics and what the consumer, if you like, the policymaker needs. Now, it might be because the policymaker just doesn't have the capacity to use research and that might particularly be uh, the case if uh, it's a very under-resourced department, if the politicians are saying, I need answers tomorrow. 
uh, if uh, it's a country where the civil service or the policy makers at the local level are very poorly resourced. And so uh, the research might be excellent, but they're not able to use it. But it can also be because the research actually just isn't produced in a way that the policymakers can need. It may be dealing with different topics, not the ones they want answers to. It may be that it comes out three months after the politicians have asked uh, for the answer. It may be because it's thousands of pages long and the officials really only have the capacity to read something that's two pages. So a lot of this frustration is about the food we might have done the research but not recognising what the policymaker can actually need. And I quote from Coleman again because he's so good at putting it in a nutshell, but yeah, executive summaries by lunchtime is what's needed, not 100-page reports in three months. Now, there are lots of other reasons, unfortunately, why they don't use what we've done. And one of them is uh, what's called epistemic uncertainty, and that's because, in fact, there is no agreement on the facts, is there? Often we disagree. Uh, sometimes the topic actually isn't amenable to providing facts, um, but often it's that we don't agree on the facts. I mean, a great example of this is when academics were asked uh, 10 years ago, if we open up the borders to European Union migration, how many people might come? And there was a study which said, uh, well, the net migration might be about 13,000 a year. Now, the migration was vastly greater than that. Uh, that was an embarrassment to the politicians, so they're the ones who get the blame. Of course, they had misinterpreted what the academics said. For one thing, they said it was net migration, but it's the overall figures that were very much higher, but it was higher than academics thought, uh, and that's partly because very much many fewer member states opened their gates to the new European Union migrants than the analysis had depended on. So, um, the facts are not always correct or they're wrongly interpreted. The analysis can differ. Another great example is, is migration an economic benefit or not? Academics, very, very good economists, will differ on that. What's the impact on wages? What's the impact on unemployment? So uh, the politicians get the blame if we get it wrong, uh, if they choose the wrong facts, but it also means that they can choose between the facts uh, to suit uh, the policy position they want. And then there's another reason, and that is we're not the only people producing knowledge. There are others uh, with whom, in effect, we compete, uh, which, uh, as some colleagues have written, have a more seductive discourse. They're better than we are in the think tanks, uh, in NGOs, uh, consultants, in providing what the politicians and policymakers want and in selling it in a much more effective way. Their methodology may be weaker, uh, but they make it very much more accessible often than we do, and they market very effectively. And my final quote from David Coleman, yeah, for most journalists, research is a telephone call to a researcher. In-depth research is two such telephone calls. And that, in a way, is what we're up against and uh, how often we find if, for instance, we tender for um, a piece of research, say for the European Commission, that it's actually a consultant who gets it instead because they have no arms about gearing what they do to exactly what the policymakers want, whereas, of course, uh, we like to go more broadly than that and sometimes ask more difficult questions. So all of that analysis uh, in the literature was, in a way, narrowly about this relationship between policymakers and academics and why the research uh, isn't always used. 
But clearly, we need to step back, as I suggested before, if we really want to understand this relationship and look at the whole political and economic context of migration in different countries, in different political systems, at different points of time, to understand why it's used or not used. And I've given here as an example uh, some uh, research by uh, our own uh, Jim Biao uh, about internal migration in China. An interesting article where he shows that despite um, a political context in which the government was not particularly open to research evidence on many topics, but that at this particular point in time, over the last decade, the uh, challenges that internal migration have posed in China as it's opened up to a market economy which has substantially increased internal migration as people have moved to the cities looking for jobs, created a situation in which suddenly the government found it needed knowledge, it needed to know what was going on, and created a market, if you like, for academics uh, to produce uh, some answers. But he also argues that the kind of descriptive analysis that academics were doing at the time was unchallenging to uh, the uh, powers uh, that be. It didn't challenge the vested interests, and so academics were allowed a little bit more autonomy in research than they might otherwise have been. And that also um, the academic focus on migrants' rights, on actually more migrants' experiences and uh, uh, the difficult time that they were having, was compatible with... Uh, the shift to the market economy and more perception about the agency of migrants in that process and it chimed with media attention that despite control of the media, newspapers and uh, television were giving to the terrible experiences that some migrants were having. There was sort of some cause celebre of gross exploitation and politicians actually felt under some pressure to do something about it. So again, there was uh, a willingness to look at what the evidence suggests. And he uses one particular example of a school uh, in a particular town that was refusing access to migrants who came from another area, uh, that they weren't eligible because they weren't local, and this caused a little bit of a furor, and uh, as a result of the research about it and the exposure, plus the media exposure, uh, the policy was changed. Um, he then goes on to argue that actually the research needs to move away from this descriptive analysis to something that's much more challenging structurally and so on, but of course, when that happened, uh, they might expect to get a less... Uh, favourable audience uh, in uh, the government uh, quarters. So the political uh, and economic context matters. We need to understand it if we're really going to understand how the material is used. And then there have been other academic colleagues, um, particularly uh, in sociology, who said, well, there's another factor here, and that is the sort of structural relationship differs between different countries, between academics and government. And that it's only if we understand that relationship, the relationship of funding, the role of academics and advisory bodies, uh, the way in which academic or epistemic networks engage with government networks, that we'll be able to see why some pe people have influence and others don't. And quite a bit of this research has focused on integration uh, policy, and uh, these examples here uh, from Jorgensen, he compared how this works in Sweden and Denmark and showed that, for instance, researchers 
have continued to be centrally engaged in policymaking in Sweden, whereas in recent years in Denmark they've been marginalised because they, be, they were too critical of what government policy was doing, and uh, only privileged actors, those that actually, whose analysis chimed with what the government was doing, uh, continued to be privileged to have the kind of access through committees uh, that continued uh, in Sweden, despite the fact that in Sweden, in fact, uh, there was quite a lot of criticism of what the government was doing, and partly explained by this very, very strong culture in Sweden of government commissions of inquiry as part of the policy-making process, and that provides a space for academics uh, to be more challenging than has continued in other contexts. And then there's another study, a German-Dutch comparison, uh, where uh, the focus on the Netherlands showed how in a decade, 15 years ago, there was an incredibly close relationship between academics and policymakers, which really provided a monopoly for one particular paradigm of integration policy, what they call the ethnic minorities policy, uh, which was hugely influential on what the government did. But when it came to the point where that policy was seen in government terms at least to have failed, the government said, we're going to scrap that and do something completely different. Those academics were out the door, and at that point, a great scepticism about, did we really want that close relationship with academics? It wasn't very helpful in practice. They, maybe they stopped us thinking more widely, and now that relationship has distanced. Whereas in Germany, the opposite happened. Academics have been very scientific, separate from uh, government. Then as integration became more of a contentious issue, government became more anxious about was it doing the right thing, turned to academics, a closer relationship developed. So... Clearly, there is something in this about the structural relationship, but there must be a question for us about the line of causality. Is it that the structural relationship influences government, or is that government needs a particular relationship with academics and therefore creates that structure? Um, There's a sort of chicken and egg question uh, there. Now, I think this... uh, is very interesting. Uh, this research, um, on which people like Christina Boswell <coughs> from Edinburgh uh, and Andrew Geddes in Sheffield have been influential, is saying actually a key question is what kind of decision we're talking about. If it's a sort of technocratic decision, where facts are accepted as a legitimate basis for making that decision, research is going to be influential. So to take a very technocratic decision, how many... Uh, immigration officers, do you need at Heathrow Airport on a Sunday evening? Well, you measure the flows, don't you? You see how long it takes each one to get through. <coughs> it's all fact, isn't it? There's no, nothing else comes into that. But if it's a decision that's actually dependent on values, then facts may have a part to play, but they're not really going to uh, clinch it, are they? And I think an example here is where should migrants be in priority for social housing? Should access to a scarce resource like public housing be based on need? They're a refugee family, lots of children, desperate need. Should they get it? They've only arrived yesterday. Should they get it? Or should somebody who's been on the housing list for 10 years waiting, locally based, contributed to the tax system, should they get it? Now, that's not something you can really resolve by fact. You can inform it by fact. Consequences for that refugee family if they're on the street compared to the consequences for that family that has to wait longer in their inadequate housing 
where they've been locally. But really, there are values in there about, for instance, the importance of belonging, the relative weight of need uh, versus belonging and the contribution. Um, and uh, a very telling uh, quote, really, on that from the Danish Prime Minister, that uh, we experts can be useful in submitting factual knowledge, but when you have to make personal choices, we're all uh, experts. Now, interestingly, you may find that a government emphasises the technocratic dimension of a decision uh, to make it sound less political and more factual, because that keeps more control to themselves. Uh, This is about uh, simply we have to get the facts right, we just manage it, borders are just a matter of of getting the technology right, Um, no need for much debate about this. Uh, and by keeping out the value dimension, hoping to keep it more within their control. So it may sound like a technocratic decision, uh, but actually uh, be hiding a more political dimension. And related uh, to this, uh, we find, and again, Boswell's book that I put on the reading list, but also her articles, which are referenced at the back of the presentation, very helpfully spell out these different uses of knowledge. Now, the first is the one we're most familiar with, a sort of instrumental use, a problem-solving use, the way in which we probably, if we've ever thought about our research being used, is the way we might imagine it being used. We provide the facts, they say which is the way forward, and they do it. Now, an example here would be, why aren't migrants using a particular health service? We need to know what the barriers are. Let's do some research. We identify the three barriers to them using it. We then, uh, the service provider, take certain steps to remove those barriers and access to the service goes up. So it's a very technical, instrumental, problem-solving use of the evidence. But what uh, Christina Boswell and others have shown is that we would be naive if we thought that was the only way in which it's used. It's also used uh, in a more symbolic way. Um, It has a legitimising function for the people making the decision. It adds to their authority, to their credibility. The public have more confidence in them if they're seen to be using academic research or they give the appearance that they're relying on sound, authoritative evidence. And the third reason... Uh, the third way in which it's used, of course, is actually to substantiate a decision. They were going to take this decision anyway, but how convenient is this research which actually shows that was the right decision to take. And so we might find our evidence is used to bolster something um, rather than actually uh, to be the cause of the decision being uh, taken. And this analysis is informed by a branch of sociology, organisational sociology, Uh, which showed that organisations are actually not only motivated by doing a good job. There are other internal logics within an organisation that motivate what it does, and uh, one of them is a need to secure buy-in from the staff who work there and the stakeholders, and another is is a need to actually secure its own legitimacy so that, for instance, it can attract more resources to itself. And so it may do that through the trappings of rational decision-making, rather than actually using the research in the instrumental way that we might hope that they would. And finally, uh, in my section on how our knowledge might be used, it's not only used in relation to individual decisions, but it can be used much more um, expansively 
to uh, contribute to the development of the whole policy narrative which interprets why something is going on, right from the um, perception of what the problem is that's being dealt with, um, through the analysis of what caused that problem, through to the solutions. And significantly, competing narratives jostle for centre stage and uh, one set of politicians might be arguing this and those academics and researchers are in a sense part of that framing of that narrative and their opponents are over there arguing different interpretation of what's happening and they'll also have academic research uh, to uh, defend uh, what they're doing and the uh, scholars argue that uh, a coherent narrative, one that's going to be uh, a successful narrative is one uh, that has to be consistent with the facts, that's where we come in, but actually it also has to be uh, compelling, and that's perhaps where the think tanks uh, come in, they're better at that dimension. So, simply to, to, to sum up that uh, section, knowledge uh, can be important, it can be disregarded, but it can be important uh, in making decisions, but also in <coughs> the whole framing of the way in which a debate on migration uh, is is posed. How does all that uh, come about? Well, uh, just to in a way say the obvious impact may be direct. It may be most likely to be direct if your research is commissioned by the policymakers directly. If they've paid for it, you might expect them to read it. Uh, and if it gives them answers that they feel are politically usable, uh, you could be very influential. Um, but it's more often, uh, the research shows, it's more often going to be indirect uh, because it's picked up by others, the media, stakeholders, interest groups, and articulated by them, and the policymakers listen uh, to them. So it can be a sort of triangular relationship uh, as a Chengbiao found in that uh, Chinese example I gave you. And this is particularly the case uh, where politicians are not that interested in what academics say. They don't see that as particularly important, but they do listen to other people. And uh, research that I've also cited here, Ayadel's research in, uh, in that volume anyway on Thailand and the Philippines, not much expectation there that politicians listen to research, but certainly sensitive to what the powerful interests in society are saying. And if they pick up the research, that's a different matter. So this is very relevant for, uh, to get down to basics, to your dissemination strategy. You'll be wanting to think about who the decision makers are, but you'll also want to think, who do they listen to? And it may be equally important to get your evidence uh, to them. Before getting into, so how do we actually manage this in a practical way, there's a very, very big sort of but that we need to be aware of. The dangers of policy-driven research. We make a distinction when we're talking about uh, the role of research in policy between policy relevance, when your research is academically sound but used by policymakers and research which is policy driven where the very terms of reference, the questions, the method 
are determined by the policymakers themselves. There may be a great temptation, if we want to maximise our influence, to tailor our research to exactly what the policymakers want. They are indeed more likely to read it if we do, but that uh, surely raises a fundamental question about the appropriate role of social science. Uh, we are not here researchers working within a government department. We're in an independent academic setting. So policy relevance is appropriate, but policy driven is problematic. And as our former colleague uh, Stephen Castles said, it's not only poor sociology, but it's actually also bad policy because it accepts the very definition that the policymakers are locked within at that moment and it doesn't look outside of the box at more fundamental causes uh, and therefore also for more challenging solutions. So actually, you do them no favours by looking at it in that narrow way. In reality, though, deciding not to be policy-driven does pose some difficult choices. Your research funding has just come to an end. There's a very attractive tender just come up for a lot of money to do a bit of research for an international organisation or a government or a local authority. Do you then challenge the very terms of reference of what they want, in which case you might be less likely to get it? Do you forego the funding you need because you're worried that it's policy-driven? Um, and it raises uh, the question, if you accept the contract, as of course... Uh, we do uh, uh, by necessity all of the time uh, if you go along with the entirely policy driven approach is the impact you're having always a good uh, thing um, we are measured by impact and it's interesting to notice that any impact seems to be considered good impact but of course uh, you can imagine ways in which migration research might be used that uh, have an impact that you're not entirely comfortable with. Uh, so it does beg the question. Uh, is there a kind of impact that you could have with a bit of research the kind of impact you'd want to have? Okay, so now we get to the practical bit. What do we do if we're embarking on a new bit of research if we want uh, to be policy relevant? But I want to suggest to you that even if you think that the kind of research you want to do, you're not interested in being policy relevant, that's fine. Uh, you don't think anybody could possibly be interested in it. It's far too esoteric. Uh, you cannot see any connection uh, with the policy world. Uh, I'm suggesting to you, you nevertheless need to think this through, because while you may not be able to see policy relevance, somebody else might. And they might use your findings in a way that you just never anticipated because you hadn't stopped to think about it. So I would suggest that anybody who's doing uh, research in the migration field need to, in a way, go into it with your eyes open. You need to understand the political context of the issue, uh, how the uh, political and the policy system works uh, in the country that you're looking at, or the region, or the locality, and just think through, when I do this research, how might my evidence be used? And, of course, it's not only used by government. It might be used by business. Uh, it might be used by trade unions. It could be used by um, an ethnic migrant community themselves. Um, earlier this year, when talking on a similar subject to the DPhil students, there was somebody who's doing a doctorate on land claims between two migrant communities uh, in uh, Southeast Asia, I think, and one could immediately see how the research, which might 
sound as though it's got very little to do with the policy system could indeed be used by one of those groups against the other group to bolster their claim. So it's always worth just considering, is there anybody who might want to use my evidence? And just bear that in mind. We want to be policy-relevant, not policy-driven. And if the funding comes from a source which is rather policy-driven, at least recognise that and question it and acknowledge its limitations when you're writing up the methodology. I think we should always remember that the scientific credibility of the research is the basis of its authority. We do nobody any favours by, um, by modifying our methodology, by cutting corners, by ignoring evidence because it's inconvenient. Um, we have to have the integrity to say what we find. Uh, there's something about having the relationship with policymakers which is close enough to have influence but not so uh, close as to lose your autonomy. And then there's a very important bit at the end, indeed throughout the research, about communicating effectively to diverse audiences. So that's a sort of overview of what we need to do. I'll just take you to finish through four steps that you might want to bear in mind. So the first is this exploring the policy context. Good bit of academic research, you've thought through the theory, you know what kind of research questions you want to ask, you're thinking about methodology. At this point you step back for a moment and you say where, if anywhere, does my topic fit within uh, the interests of policy makers or other sectional interests, as I've suggested, to whom might it be relevant? Who are the decision makers who would use this and who informs their thinking? Is it actually already on their current agenda? If so, what time scale are we talking about? When might it go onto their agenda, looking ahead in the way that my research is? And then from what perspective are the different actors in the system thinking about it? Just to return to the government level, you could easily have a situation where, for instance, a Ministry of Health looked at the question in a particular way, primarily concerned to deliver a good health system, be inclusive, make sure everybody gets access to care. The Treasury might be looking at it rather differently. How much is this going to cost? We don't want any uh, change that's going to expand the number of users. So even within a government, you regularly, often, find conflicts of interest, differences of view. And while one department might be eager to use your evidence in one way, uh, another department might use it in a different way. And you're thinking about how might they use my information to bolster their analysis or to change their analysis. Um, so I want to think about that uh, when I do it. I might want to take it into account in my methodology. I don't want to be policy-driven. I'm not going to uh, frame every question that I have by what the policymakers want to know. But some of their questions are very pertinent. They're interesting. I could easily incorporate them. They'll be more interested if I do. Uh, and uh, I may or may not want to take that into account when I design how I do it. I might want to think about it in the method itself. I mean, here we are, we're in an anthropology uh, department. Uh, mostly uh, that means qualitative research. And yet we recognise that quantitative findings can have more influence uh, and to an economist, a large anthropological study that does maybe 50 qualitative interviews in depth is a sample of 50, tiny, not statistically relevant. So 
Uh, it's very helpful if one's doing qualitative research, which of course has a richness and answers questions quantitative research can't answer, that we try to see if there are any relevant statistics from someone else's survey, perhaps, or a small survey we do our, uh, a large survey we do ourselves, um, which can bolster our findings, just so that it will have more credibility with the people we want to uh, take note of it. And the third, a penultimate point, is to have dialogue with the people you want to inform throughout. So often people do the research, they get to the conclusions, and then they think, I wonder what the policy relevance of this is. But it's too late by then. Uh, not only may you potentially have not asked some of the right questions, but you haven't engaged with the people throughout the process whose attention you now want. Whereas if you consult them at the beginning... They know about your research from the beginning. Uh, They're more likely to be interested in your findings at the end. But they might also be helpful in providing you with evidence you wouldn't have access to otherwise, to nuancing the way you interpret your findings because of their understanding of it, and they might give you access to data or to research subjects. There are lots of ways in practical terms that you can try to uh, engage uh, with those uh, people, depending on who it is. Uh, you want to access to. But there's a very important point here. If you want them to engage with you, you have to build up trust with them that you're not going to go out and do the dirty on them, that when they've let their hair down, told you what the minister really wants, what that other minister's really said, uh, that you don't go out and tell an NGO about it or the press about it. You only get one chance, in a sense. If you blow your credibility, they can't trust you. Or indeed, your facts are wrong. They put it in a briefing uh, to the decision-maker, and it's shown to be wrong. Your credibility's gone. So uh, one has to build up that trust and work hard to maintain it if you want to have that uh, privileged position, if you like, of influence. And then finally, one gets to the obvious point, which everyone's aware of, and that's about effective dissemination. If we only write the tome, very few people will read it, the academic articles, uh, policymakers, NGOs and so on. For one thing, they don't have access to them in the way that we do. It's such a privilege being in a university where you don't have to pay every time you want to read an article, but for people outside of the university, they do. So if you want them to read it, you do the short executive summary, and then if it says it's going to tell them what they want to know, they will take the trouble to read the longer uh, article. If you use the media, do it with care. All of us here in Compass have experience of finding our material is used in ways we didn't quite uh, anticipate. Um, I think my worst uh, experience is when we did some research on uh, Polish and other A8 migrants a few years ago and their experiences in the UK. There was a particularly colourful quote in the report from a Polish migrant uh, who'd clearly not felt he was well treated here. He was a barman actually here in Oxford. And he said something like, uh, I'm going to milk this country dry and then dispose of it like a used mistress, something like that. So it was very colourful. We didn't use it, of course, in the press release. It was buried away in the report. But one of the tabloids actually went through the report and found it and it was in there in a centre spread, and it was in the Daily Mail. Um, and, of course, out of context, it was easy to say that, you know, that's how 
migrants feel about Britain. Actually, it was how one migrant felt about Britain. But um, it does raise the question, should we have ever put it in the report? Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, you have to do it all with care. In the executive summary of that, uh, of an earlier uh, part of that study, we put in some data which showed that the A8 migrants were planning to stay, that they stayed longer than they planned. And that was the headline that the newspapers picked up. Uh, Migrants, you know, say they're only coming for a year and stay for three kind of thing. And the research that we had done about exploitation, people being paid below the minimum wage, those things didn't get the attention. So uh, it's very difficult issues to how you frame your findings to hope that they will be used in the way that you intend. But actually, once it's out there, then you don't control it anymore. So you do have to think about it very carefully. So, to conclude, uh, we need to understand how knowledge is used. The literature gives us differing but complementary, I think, analyses of the way in which it's used in the migration policy-making process across the world. Literature rather dominated by the Western world, but some (coughs) good pieces uh, on uh, other countries and developing countries. The key factors are clearly ranged through from the political context, the nature of the decision, remember that technocratic or value-laden decision, the authority of the research, um, how it's communicated, and how seductive (coughs) the competition. What impact we have is very difficult to measure. It's not always as we might hope, but it does happen. And the steps I hope I've shown you that we can take to maximise the impact uh, without compromising our scientific integrity. Just in case you think I want to leave you with the impression that everybody ought to be aiming to do policy-relevant research, uh, policy-irrelevant research is fine. (laughs) It's okay. Um, And I rather like this quote from a professor from Columbia, who was arguing this article in The Guardian that uh, too many academics were feeling under pressure to provide uh, evidence for policymakers and that, in fact, in the way that Boswell had argued, often it's just used as a fig leaf for what they really want to do everything anyway. So uh, he was saying, uh, if, we, if we saw the way that we are, that the, our role as simply being to produce evidence for policymakers, that's hopelessly limited and a lot of policymakers wouldn't recognise some good evidence, I think he was saying, if they saw it. Uh, there was a time when intellectuals aspired to offer more, and those who still do should be supported, not trashed. So, I've uh, provided some references there, and leave it at that. I think that is useful to you.